Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Late Night Happy Hour with Kamenetsky Brothers, Brian Kamenetsky and Andy Kamenetsky. This is a show that we've been looking forward to uh, ever since she was kind enough to agree to come on. Um, Melissa Meritz is our guest tonight. She is the author of this very cool book. All right, all right, all right. It is the oral history of Richard Linklater's uh, Dazed and Confused. She's also uh, been an editor at Spin and Rolling Stone. And uh, you were one of the co-founding editors of Vulture, right? Yes, me and a guy named Dan Coyce way back in the day when it was just two people running the site. And I cannot take credit for the amazing site that it is now. It's a much smaller thing. Before they had a paywall. We'll anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The person responsible for all the success at Vulture, Melissa Merritt, <laughs> joins us tonight. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know, you know, oh, book is always super busy. We really appreciate it. And we, we both love the movie. And the book is awesome yes, so it is. It, it, this is a must read for anybody that loves days and confused obviously but also just loves the history of movies loves learning about particular periods in movie history because th this is a very interesting period the early 90s and and the indie film boom that's going on and you know how the studios react to it and you know every all these studios created their own you know indie arm uh, for you know, an indie division, there's there's a lot happening in this, and it's a really fertile period of actors that all start coming up. A lot of them linked to Days and Confused, so it's it's pretty exciting. It's it. What I, I guess to begin, what was your initial reaction? Do you remember the first time you saw Dazed and Confused? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the pretty much the perfect audience for this movie. Um, I saw I was just going into my first year of high school. Um, and I saw it in the theater in the fall of 93, which is when it came out. Um, and, you know, it's so weird, even though it's set in 1976, it felt like the future to me. It felt like this is what the next four years of my life are going to be like which seemed both amazing and terrifying. <laughs> which parts were which? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the idea of kind of getting high and driving around listening to Aerosmith sounded pretty okay to me. <laughs> part, maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great atmospheric movie. It's one of the things that you really capture very well in, in the book, and a lot of people talk about it. What, what prompted you all these years later to, to want to do this type of really, say really comprehensive oral history. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, I knew there'd be good stories just because it's such a hinge point in so many people's lives. I mean, obviously it was Richard Linklater's first studio movie after the success of Slacker. Um, and it was a lot of people's first film, you know, not just McConaughey's, a lot of people's first major film and also kind of the last film that a lot of them felt they were able to contribute really creatively before they saw a darker side of Hollywood. Um, but I think personally, the thing that made me interested is that I read this interview with Richard Richard Linklater, where he said that he wanted Dazed and Confused to be an anti-nostalgia movie, a movie that kind of showed that the 70s sucked. And I thought, wow, everybody sees this movie as a total nostalgia movie, not just about, you know, nostalgic about high school, but nostalgic about the 70s, now nostalgic about the 90s. So I kind of wanted to see, I think the first question was, how did that happen? And I think one of the answers is that the cast is so nostalgic about that movie that it's kind of become this self-mythologizing thing. That that to me is is kind of as like that was one of the things that in in getting into the book that I found so interesting and like it makes a ton of sense once you start uh, kind of understanding you know it, everybody thinks 
you know, both like their decade sucks and the <laughs> ones that came before were the really good ones, <laughs> you yeah. know, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, wh why do you think, you know, you talk about the, the, the reception of the cast, like who really do seem incredibly enthusiastic about the movie and something I want to talk about later. But, you know, what about that era do you think he really wanted to point out, you know, wasn't worth remembering with that with that level of nostalgia, that sort of late 70s period? So I think what people don't, or what a lot of people don't realize, what I didn't realize before I got into this book, is that it's so specific to his own life in the 70s, growing up in the small town of Huntsville, Texas. So I think it's really about his own feelings, not necessarily about the 70s generally, but you know, growing up in a pretty small town where mm -hmm. literally, like the seniors were literally hitting the freshmen with paddles, the girls were literally covering the freshmen in ketchup and mustard, like all of those details are real. Um, so you can see how that part of it um, was not super fond memories for him. Like, I, you know, I interviewed a lot of people from Huntsville for this book, and some of them told me that watching those hazing scenes was really upsetting for them because they'd be in the theater and people would be laughing at those scenes and they'd remember people getting hurt and think, you know, this isn't funny. So I think I can kind of see how he'd have maybe a more complicated perspective on the movie than someone who's never gone through that and just thinks, you know, it's a funny party movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty ironic that he talks about Huntsville feeling like a prison to him, and and the kids yeah. in the movie talk about you know if, they, if these are the best years of my life, shoot me. Yeah. Huntsville is literally next to a prison. Yes, like there, there are there are like the people of Huntsville often just end up in that prison or working in that prison. It's like a place where people go to die, and there really is that element of a dead end town and wanting to escape it that you you really feel in this movie that is remembered in a lot of ways as this stoner comedy. Yeah, I think actually one of Linklater's stepfathers was um, worked for the prison. A lot of people's parents worked for the prison. And he said, you know, when he went to, to practice for baseball or football, he was running by the prison. So it's like it's real close to home. And I think for a little while he was toying with making a movie about prison guards. Um, so obviously, you know, there's this feeling of, you know, some people told me when you grow up in Huntsville, you either are in the prison or you work for the prison. Mm -hmm. um, and that the other option is to work for the college. Um, so there's two very distinct paths, I think a lot of people talk about there. But, you know, it's it the, for a movie that is very specific and, and you, you know, there's you capture some great details in, in the book. It's it is incredibly universal too, which is like, you know, why you could look at it when you went to see it and here's the next four years of my life. And, you know, it, it feels like high school to me. We did all the stupid football hazing rituals and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, we grew up in suburban St. Louis. So, I mean, th there's a lot of overlap there. Why, why do you think this movie that was so specific has a, a universality to it that allowed it to become this, this cult classic you know, yeah. particularly for people in a, in a certain age group. Yeah, so the book starts out with everybody saying, that was totally my high school, you know, mm -hmm. like we had a moon tower, we had an emporium, everybody picking out these things. And then one of my very favorite quotes in the entire book is this guy, Jason David Scott, who was a unit publicist on the movie, who says, that was totally my high school, except I grew up in LA and the music was different and the clothes <laughs> were different. And he just kind of goes down this list and you're thinking, so 
how is it still his life if all of those details are different? And I think the answer is that Richard Linklater really caught the vibe, the feeling of what it's like to be a teenager. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the music too. You know, sometimes the music kind of speaks for what that feeling is like and the details don't matter as much. Did you go into it expecting it to be as much like the bookends of Richard Linklater's life, you know, every everything leading up to it, everything happening afterwards. Like in certain ways, it's kind of a loose bio of, of him as much as the movie. Yeah. Well, I don't think I expected that when I first went into it, but as soon as I learned how specific the details in the movie were to his life, I just couldn't avoid it. I mean, it's so personal. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, most filmmakers, if they're being honest, are making highly autobiographical films, but he's just way more transparent about it. And um, I think it kind of had to be his story. And I also think that his story, as you were saying before, is kind of indicative of this time in the 90s, um, where you know there were a lot of first time studio filmmakers taken from this indie world where they were charging everything to credit cards um, and having this kind of welcome to Hollywood experience for better or worse, where they suddenly were dealing with executives. Um, at a time too, where you know Universal was making a movie for $6 million, Daisy McHughes had around a $6 million budget, at the same time, that they were doing Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, which is just something they don't do anymore. You don't have this slate of films from these, you know, multi-million dollar movies to this tiny kind of indie vibe film that's being made by a studio. Yeah, I mean, we, we've lost the mid-budgets in general, much less, yeah. you know, the, the stuff that far below the line. Yeah. So it, it's, I mean, it, it's a very, I, I think one of the things that I, I, just as somebody who loves movies that I really loved about the book is just the way you captured that period of time and you know how pivotal it was to all these different people involved and and for a while it felt like it was this launching pad for you know a type of movie that would exist for a while and then you hear a lot of people in the book saying like yeah you know you you could already feel like what we were doing was on the verge of dying like that it had a shelf life yeah, I was surprised to hear Parker Posey say that that was the case in the late 90s. Like, I think of her as somebody who was, you know, incredibly successful, still obviously incredibly successful, yeah. but incredibly successful at that time. And she, you know, was kind of like, that was the beginning of the end for indie film, the late 90s. Well, so I feel like she, and she, nobody, I think, represents that era and like how you could become kind of a star and a thing and, and whatever the Sundance it girl right. more yeah. than Parker Posey. I mean, that is, I mean, you go through her filmography and it is that movie, you know, 43 times and many of which are just outstanding. Yeah. Um, when you, when you, you know, talk about the, 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 the number of people for whom this became like a pivot point um, there's, I didn't realize, first of all, how many people didn't, for all the noise we make about, oh my God, so many people are in this movie. Yeah. When you get into the section of the, the for casting and the people who didn't get in the movie, it's like, yeah. oh my God, like you forget. <laughs> uh, but that's amazing. What One of the things that I think though is fascinating about Dazed and Confused though is for all the people that are, you know, Ben Affleck and, you know, people that come out of this that become really big stars, Renee Zellweger basically is a walk-on in this, yeah. are the number of people who, essentially never worked again and how how does how did that happen where you have this blend of people who become really famous that we think about and then the people who just aren't actors even yeah good question i mean i think that a lot of people see dave confused as the launch pad for all these careers in the same way that it's like 
you know, a bunch of bands heard Velvet Underground and started their own bands. It's kind of the origin story for this certain generation of actors. Um, but that really didn't happen. Like there's a chapter in my book that talks about how it took a very long time for um, people to become the, you know, level of star that they were. And I think the reason, I mean, obviously a ton of it is luck. I think everybody is awesome in that movie. Um, but I think one of the reasons why McConaughey was the exception was that this great casting director, Don Phillips really saw him and said, you know, you can move in with me in LA right after Dazed and Confused. I'm going to get you an agent. I'm going to explain to you how the industry works and really just kind of set him up. And obviously he's a super talented guy, but I don't know if he would have had the same success if he didn't have that support. But he's also, you, you sort of explode a little bit of the mythology around like, you know, the sort of McConaughey wandering around and somebody just plucks him out of thin air and drops him into this movie. Like yeah. he was a little bit more of a calculating figure in terms of how to get into to this and into into the industry than than maybe the mythology lets on. Yeah, I mean, people remember him applying to be a PA, um, you know, and he had not decided that he wanted to be part of the film world that long before Disney. Mm -hmm. He wanted to be a lawyer for a while. And then he got into film school and even he said he knew he wanted to be a storyteller, but he wasn't really sure if it was gonna be acting or directing or something like that. So, um, you know, this bartender that he was friends with at the time tells me that he called McConaughey knowing that McConaughey really wanted to get in the film, yeah. knowing McConaughey had spent that summer sending out letters to different directors to try and make his way into film and said, you gotta get over here. There's a casting director here, you gotta meet with him. So, you know, it's a different side to the story, I think that McConaughey tells so well other people remember it slightly differently there's a great detail in there where I, I don't remember which of his friends he's talking with but matthew mcconaughey says that he really admires brad pitt at the time for doing cool world yeah which was this pretty big bomb and i mean honestly not a very good movie yeah. and his, his <laughs> terrible it's, movie. It's, it's not a good movie <laughs> and you know his friend is like cool world like why like that movie's awful and he pointed out that Pitt was trying to do something interesting, like yeah. early in his career and, and trying to work against just being a pretty boy and, and actually showcase talent. And that's a pretty ambitious, it's a pretty ambitious thing to latch on at that stage of McConaughey's career, particularly when you're as good looking as he is, knowing my looks can be a real springboard for my career to yeah. be identifying somebody like Brad Pitt, who, who always had been bucking against that. Yeah, and that same friend remembers him quoting long passages of Raising Arizona when he first met. Yeah. <laughs> so like, obviously, you know, McConaughey knew pretty early on the type of stuff he wanted to do. It just took him a little while to get into that stage of his career, I think. But you see that in something like Dallas Buyers Club. Like, you see that, um, you know, he did go through a stretch of rom romantic comedies, which you probably have to do. But, um, but yeah, you see him kind of get to the place he wants. But, you know, Pitt, Brad, it's funny, actually. And by the way, uh, Monty underscore 10 says, nice, Melissa's based in Portland. I saw Dazed and Confused at the Mission Theater Pub two to three years ago. Ah, uh, Mission so, Theater's the best. <laughs> shout out from a local. But uh, it, Brad, it's funny because Brad Pitt actually went through through a period like that too you know he he entered the scene doing a lot of supporting stuff and you know some some kind of offbeat things mixed with studio periods and then you know he had like the stretch where he's doing stuff like the mexican and you know like i think yeah. some pretty kind of broad i think to hear him talk about a kind of boring studio stuff before i think he kind of rediscovered his own footing and it's it's just interesting i hadn't thought about it but it's just interesting that mcconaughey latched on to brad pitt because that's 
something he went through himself before yeah. eventually, I think, rediscovering his own footing as an actor. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, I wonder if he'd remember it that way because this guy was so great. This guy, Sam Lawrence, who is the bartender who says that he told McConaughey that this casting director was there, brought him to the bar. Um, but he remembers so much from that era. And then he was like, you know, it was really important to me, but McConaughey probably doesn't remember it. And McConaughey's <laughs> like, who? <laughs> and I was like, Sam Lawrence was like, oh yeah, Sam Lawrence. But it's obviously, you know, a big part of Sam Lawrence's memory. And I think McConaughey just remembers it in a totally different way. Well, look, I mean, I can tell you as a person who is just that good looking, I can tell you it is hard to go through the world and have people take you seriously. So, I, I mean, I understand. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, you can spend the rest of the hour. I could break it down for you. But I mean, <laughs> I, it's, a, it's a very lonely existence, Melissa. It's not, it is. It's not, everything it's not as glamorous as you'd think. I mean, it's not terrible. I'm not going to lie. I get a lot of free <laughs> shit, but it's not. Uh, but like, when was there a sense when these guys were doing this movie of of who was going to break out and who was going to, who were going to be the people that we'd remember, you know, and would still be working and do all these things, you know, thirty whatever years later, twenty years later. Yeah, I mean, everybody says now that they knew at the time that McConaughey was going to be huge. Um, I believe some of them. I think some of them are probably remembering in a, you know, hindsight kind of way. Um, but it, I really think the fact that his, McConaughey's dad passed away while he was making this movie, and then he returned to set not that long afterward um, and did the I Get Older, They Say the Same Age scene. And a lot of people said that knowing that he'd just gone through losing his dad showed up right afterward and delivered that scene with this real kind of easy charm really kind of blew a lot of people away. And I get that. I totally get that. Yeah. It's funny with, with that scene in particular and you know, the Wooderson character who is, I mean, he's, I think the most popular character from this movie, the most enduring almost 30 years later, he's also creepy. You know, I mean, yeah. he, he, he lacks certain social graces. I think that it, that's fair to say. And I mean, he's the type of character that I think wouldn't be created in a movie now or presented the yeah. same way. But it, it's a it's a tribute to just how charming McConaughey is and how funny he is and, you know, charismatic that he manages to make this work. But you also think about certain things like it's it, whether it was always this way or Linklater noticed it during the filming, like you never see him act on these impulses. And I, I think that like, you never see him actually making out with a high school girl, you right. know, the, the ones that, you know, stay the same as he gets older, yeah. like in the, in the same way that I think like the hazing stuff doesn't become too out of control for the audience, because other than Ben Affleck's character and Parker Posey's character, none of the seniors, I think, take it personally to a point where they just seem sadistic. Like, you know, they'll paddle the kids and then afterwards they'll hang with them at a party. Like, you know, they, like pretty sadistic. <laughs> I mean, they're well, they, battling kids. I mean, they, they are, <laughs> but what I'm saying is like yeah, some yeah. of them are able to drop it as like, look, this is just the ritual that our weird ass small town in Texas does, and everyone goes through it, but it's not personal. You just have to deal with it. But then afterwards, we'll buy you beer and hang out with you at the at the foosball emporium. Whereas yeah. someone like O'Banion, you know, probably flunked a year on purpose so he could do this again or you know, Parker Posey's character clearly relishes this. And I, and I think the movie does a really good job balancing it so all the kids 
don't become unlikable or, or Wooderson doesn't just become like, oh my God, that, that guy's gross. Well, I think a lot of people do see Wooderson as, oh my God, that guy's gross. And I think that's kind of the genius of this movie is you can watch it in totally different ways. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember when I was in high school watching that, I get older, they stay the same age <sighs> and being kind of pissed off that the guys around me were laughing at that, like just feeling like, Oh, don't laugh at that. But now I watch it when I'm older and you see that um, Sasha Jensen's character, Don, is behind him and he's like, you're gonna go to jail for saying that. Like when you're older, you realize there's a little bit of pushback from the other characters yeah. when, they're, when they're being terrible. And even Ben Affleck's character, like you see the other guys being like, what an asshole, that guy flunked. You know, it, like there's a lot more pushback of like, you're not supposed to treat this guy as this cool, guy he seems like kind of an idiot he seems kind of sad like the bullies in that movie really feel like say, there's there really is a sad there's just a sadness yeah. to Wooderson's character too like and I, I think that's part of what it is like you laugh at McConaughey and like you laugh at the jokes but at the same time you recognize that's really kind of pathetic yeah. um you know when he when he you know crawls out the gate and the police are there and it's like they're looking at him like dude I mean they really? know it. Right, I know, but it's like you're still doing this, and like, yeah. and you you get that as a viewer. And you know, Obanian's character is sad. Like when you get older, you realize like you don't just become that guy. Like you, something happens to you. You're lacking something. You're trapped in your whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately, like you know, all these guys are kind of accepted because the one thing they all have in common is we're all sort of stuck here. Like. Yes. These are the things that unite us. I mean, that guy may be an asshole, but he's kind of our asshole because we're all in this same place. Yeah. Like, there's just nothing else to do. The freshmen have to go to the party. There's nothing else to do. Absolutely. And it's such a small town. It's like, what else? Where are they going to go? Even, you know, everyone kind of ends up at the same place. How many times have you seen the movie? <laughs> well, I'm notoriously bad at estimating things. You could ask me how many miles it is to the moon, and I'd be like, it could be two, it could be five uh, million, I don't know. I, but, we have uh, a, a game oh. later where I have a bunch of jelly beans in a glass. Yeah, no, it's just, oh, it's my nightmare to have to okay, do that. Well, we'll skip it then. But I think, like, the, the, I mean, a ton, a ton, a ton. I've watched it a ton of times. But I will say, there, I bet there are people out there who have seen it more than I have. Um, people tell me that all the time. And I think the reason why is because there's no plot to it. So you're not really watching for the story. It's the kind of movie where you put it on an entire summer um, and you just kind of have it on in the background because it's like hanging out with somebody. Like, like Quentin Tarantino once told this story about how he was in Amsterdam and he had writer's block and he was just kind of struggling and feeling lonely. And he used to go out and rent Dazed and Confused because he felt like he was hanging out with these people. You know, people feel like they know a Wooderson, they know a Darla, they know a Slater. Um, so I think that's why um, people just keep replaying it and replaying it. Yeah, that, that plotlessness that I know uh, Universal really struggled with in terms of the marketing of it. Yeah. I, I think you're right. that, And this is something that you can't really, or I guess maybe you don't always recognize in real time. Like th that timelessness of it, The you don't know in 1993, hey, there will eventually be this thing called YouTube where people just <laughs> upload different scenes from a movie. And you can yeah. sort of just drop into a movie whenever you feel like it. If, if you feel like watching uh the beer bust scenes or or you know the if you feel like watching the paddling with no more mr nice guy like you can just dial that up and you you don't become dependent on loving this movie by watching it from start to finish 
It's so true. And you know, it's interesting. I was talking before about how there wasn't a lot of difference culturally between the 70s and the 90s when I saw it. But now you look at it and it's like, okay, rock music has pretty much totally disappeared. Weed mm -hmm. is legal. You know, kids aren't even really driving anymore. They're taking Uber or Lyft. And it's like so much of that teenage culture has totally disappeared. And there's still some constants, but it's changed. Well, I just, I think the, the, the amount of sort of freedom that you have to do things is just, I mean, I mean look again, maybe it's different in, 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 there are places in this world that I, I obviously don't know about, you know, if, if you live in a place that's similar to, you know, that's that town in Texas, maybe your life is, you know, you still kind of just go out and you wander around and you do whatever. But I know at least in LA, like that doesn't exist. Like you just yeah. don't do that with your kids and you know if they don't kids by the time you know my kids are 10 and 8 and, and 2 by the time they're old enough to be driving they may not even you know it may just be cheaper to let them uber everywhere than than to have yeah. them drive you know I, so, a lot of that stuff kind of goes away but like i i one of the things i did because i hadn't seen i've seen the movie a million times but i hadn't seen it in a while and so i went back and watched it I was surprised I'd forgotten how little screen time almost everyone has, except wow. for for uh, for Jason London, you know, for for Pink Floyd. It's like Matthew McConaughey is not in the movie like a ton. Like you don't, it, it, the movie is not structured. He did it more than they expected. Yeah, but it's still not. It's that. still not a lot. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a few scenes and a few lines, all of which are now on T-shirts. But like you. <laughs> It's 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 structured so differently than a John Hughes movie or something like that, where you think about teenagers. When you were going back and and doing the the research for this, and then you know performing the interviews, how how much of an issue was that? How how aware were people that what they were putting on here was so different from those you know that that line of of comedies, teen comedies in the eighties and stuff. Yeah, um, I don't know if everybody was aware at the time the impact that Dazed was going to have, mm -hmm. um, but I think they definitely were aware of how different the process of making it was, um, especially afterward. But I think, you know, Joy Lauren Adams told me that she, um, you know, the next movie she did, she was like, oh, can I change this line to this and maybe I can write this scene? And the director was like, no. <laughs> that's not how movies work anymore so i think you know they really felt like they were contributing creatively um and you know i think that led into the fact that they were having this really great time behind the scenes that kind of mirrored a high school experience at the same time that they were having this high school experience on screen yeah it's funny actually hearing ben affleck in the book you know the perspective he has is somebody who's a major movie star but he's also a director yeah. and as much fun as he had making this movie, and he, and he clearly you know, he says it's the most fun he ever had on a set. It's the, it's one of the movies that really speaks to him the most. You can feel the wheels turning in his head as a director of like you know a fifty million dollar, seventy million dollar mm -hmm. movie, going like you can't do this stuff. Like you can't just yeah, let yeah, the yeah. It's one of my favorite lines in the you know in, that that I, in the in the book is just where he says that feels incredibly risky. Like yeah, let, well, I mean that all these teenagers just run around drinking and doing drugs and whatever, having sex. I mean, like you know yeah. the way it's. I, I definitely want to get into the Sean Andrews chapter later because yeah. it's insane. But you know, <laughs> it's a lot of people remember Sean Andrews and Mia Jovovich just going at it in public. I mean, just like, you know, on the floor 
or on the ground, like, uh, you know, as, as things are getting shot <laughs> yeah. and she was 16. Yeah. You know, I mean, like you have a lot of young people in their, you know, either early twenties or younger, essentially being unsupervised. That is not going to happen on a movie set in Hollywood. Now. Ever. Like, no way. Yeah. I mean, you can argue it shouldn't, but whether you think it should or shouldn't, it's not going to. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, when I talked to Linklater about it, he was like, I approached it like a coach. Um, you know, you don't want to, the coach is never going to ask you like who you were sleeping with on Friday night. It's like, if you're going to come up to the game and you're going to perform well on the game, I don't want to know about anything else. <laughs> so, um, you know, and you can see that. I think that he was smart. He probably knew that they were having, you know, experiences that created chemistry offset that would translate um, to the screen and also having drama behind the scenes, obviously, um, that might, you know, work well in the movie too. Who's, whose stories were you most interested in learning about um, when, when you first started working on this? Yeah, I, it's so hard to choose. Um, I mean, I think Jason London's story, I don't know if I knew that it was going to be like this before I wrote it, but um, I find his story pretty moving. Um, you know, this was just a real, uh, I think he still says it was like the highlight of his career. Um, and, you know, he lost his sister right after Dazed and Confused. And I think that colored a lot of his acting experience after that, he was still grieving. Um, and I think it also kind of put this cleft in his life of his life being before Dazed and after Dazed. Um, so I think his story uh, still seems pretty moving to me. You know, it's funny. Like I, I'd always noticed this um, in the movie with with Randall Pink Floyd, the the central character that Jason uh, London plays. But he's a really interesting center for a stoner comedy, or something that is yeah. that's seen as a stoner company a, a comedy. I know Richard Linklater would push back against that, but you know, most most characters at the center of a movie like that you know, that are high a lot. And Jason London's character does smoke a lot of pot in this movie. Yeah. You know, they, they tend to be pretty goofy, pretty shallow, you know, where they talk about Cheech and Chong or like Pineapple Express, whatever. Yeah. He's this very pensive, you know, little, he's relaxed, but he's, he's got some angst. He, he's a very unusual character. Like he's smarter than I think he lets on. And it, it was, it's a very interesting choice to have that guy, as the focal point for a movie that's marketed a lot like this. Definitely. Um, it feels like a different kind of, or felt at the time, definitely like a different type of stoner comedy, but now you see so much of that influence on stoner comedies today. But I think the reason why he's the center of this is because he's Richard Linklater. Um, you know, Linklater told me that both Pink and Mitch, uh, who's Wiley Wiggins' character, um, are based on him when he was a junior um, and when he was an, or, uh, you know, an incoming senior versus an incoming freshman. Um, and I think you really see that, I mean, his hair at the time, if you look at high school yes. pictures of Richard Linklater, he looks like Jason London mm -hmm. in that movie. Um, he was a star athlete like Pink Floyd is in that movie, but he was also kind of a punk rock guy. Um, and, um, you know, you see these different, and also kind of like a really good student, like he was winning awards, um, you know, when he was in high school. So you see how he could relate to the geeks and the jocks and the stoners. Well, th that's actually also, too, what I think makes... Uh... Pink, Randall Pink Floyd, such a great character, is 
I think no matter who you were in high school or how you identified, whatever, you can see something of yourself in him because, you know, he, he is a jock, but he's not a jerk. You know, he'll hang out with anybody. He kind of floats through different cliques. He's whether he gets good grades or not, he's smart. You know, he's, he's into music, you know, that he can see through a lot of the bullshit, you know, even, even as like the big man on campus, you can tell he thinks a lot of this is just stupid. And and he really, he doesn't buy into what I think a lot of the other kids around him would aspire to, like in terms of being like the biggest thing in his town or the biggest thing at his school, he sees through it all as bullshit. And I I think it's, it's a, again, it's a, it's a big reason why I think so many people latch onto this movie, because I think it's very difficult to not see some part of yourself in that period of your life in this character. Totally. Well, and so many of the characters, like to me, it's Tony. Uh, I feel like I was a total Tony when I was in high school. You know, Anthony this- Rapp's character. Yeah, sorry, Anthony Rapp's character. Um, just way too earnest, um, you know, like talking too much. Um, <laughs> he just feels like this kind of sweet but awkward, but he still gets invited to the party kind of character. And normally, you know, when you think about 80s movies, the nerd character is such a type, right? It's like the tape right. around the glasses, like terrible laugh, you know, never gets laid. Um, and this is the first time in this movie that I remember seeing nerds who were kind of cool, who were talking about politics and conspiracy theories. And um, (laughs) when you see um, Anthony Rapp and Adam Goldberg and Marisa Ribisi in the car, the conversations they have in the car, like to me, that's, that's ends up being slacker later. Like they're the types of characters you might find milling around Austin in like the late eighties, early nineties. I really love that he kind of takes these types of the stoner and the nerd and kind of fuzzes the edges between them. Well, yeah. And I think that's, I think that that's one of, again, the, the universality of the movie. Movie. And, and this is, I'll be perfectly honest, one of the things that makes the movie like you have to go back and watch it again is keeping track of all the characters is really hard again because there are so many of them and a lot of them don't actually spend that much time on screen. Yeah. But, you know, so like, but there isn't a stereotype in the movie, not not one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the closest thing you could say to, you know, a stereotype and, and Richard Linkletter kind of cops to it is like th- there's one black guy like there's one minority yeah. character in the entire movie and he yeah. basically says you know i was making a movie about you know the white part of, of town here like he's not pretending it, it's something else but yeah. you know that to get kids right in a way that is well-rounded um without having them on screen all the time is incredibly complicated how do you think he was able to do that um, well, you know, I think it's because they're inspired by real people. I mean, it's not one-to-one, um, obviously, but, um, you know, it, even the the one black character, um, Linklater told me, was inspired by this guy, Leslie Warren, who he was friends with in high school. And I interviewed Leslie Warren and I was like, you know, did that feel not right to you that there's only one black guy in this high school? And he was like, well, I was the only black guy in this group of friends. Um, so even Leslie Warren felt like that was realistic to the high school experience that he and Richard Linklater had. I mean, there are obviously a lot of black kids at that school, but I think in that group of friends and in Richard Linklater's idea of what White Huntsville was doing, that that felt true to the time. So I think the fact that so many of the details are so specific to his life 
um, helps those characters not feel like these cookie cutter characters. And you know, it's interesting, like Sasha Jensen, who plays Don, told me that when they auditioned for the movie, he thought this movie's never gonna get made because he was so used to in casting being like, okay, I'm casting for the jock or I'm applying to be this guy. And because the casting wasn't like that, they were just talking to these kids about their real high school experiences. He thought there's no way this is gonna happen. <laughs> and, and just having them kind of mill about. I mean, yeah. he was having them interact with each other and just seeing, do they have chemistry together? And you know that that works really well with Linklater's you know allowances that he gave them in terms of improvising. And he actually told them, uh, and I didn't know this, but it's really fascinating. If you don't like your character, change it. You know, yeah. change elements of your character, add more of yourself into this, or things that you relate to. And it, it's funny, the more you know some of these actors in, you know, in real life, uh, you know, to the degree that you can tell what they're about from the way their careers have taken off, like you can see those elements of Adam Goldberg in, in his character. Like, you know, it's a really funny part in the book where Nikki Cat breaks down who all of these actors were imitating. Like, you know, he's like, I'm totally doing Mickey Rourke. Cole Hauser's doing Christopher Walken, uh, yeah. Adam Goldberg's doing Woody Allen, like how they're all just, you You can see this stage they're at in their career, like early 20s, you know, really trying to perfect their craft. And and th those were all the things that Linklater allowed them to bring in and then those elements of their own personality. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so funny, right? You're like, Christopher Walken was my inspiration for playing a high school kid. Like, well, <laughs> and like all these guys talking about how, like, oh, we were so method, you know, we really wanted to be method actors. And you're like, but you're basically playing yourself. Like, it's this really interesting combination of naturalism and this total passion to these guys being like, this is my one chance to get this right. And I'm going to really pour my craft into this role. Do you think do you think some of that is related to that mixture of people, you know, some of whom literally were not actors who were just sort yeah. of kind of plucked off the street with these people who are obviously very serious about it? Does that does that contribute to it, do you think? Definitely. I mean, in some of those cases with the kid, I think he was so smart, first of all, to have it be kind of half professional actors and half just kids who they, like you said, just came out of the schools in, um, in Austin. Because a lot of those kids from Austin either knew each other or knew mm -hmm. of each other or went to school together. So there's kind of like already this built-in chemistry or relationships between them. There's an awkwardness between them in some cases. Um, like Jeremy Fox, who played Hirschfelder, he's the guy who's making out with the girl at the dance, um, you know, when they're leaving right. the dance kind of black light room. Um, he knew that girl in real life who he's making out with and had a total crush on her. And it has this moment where he's, you know, kissing her for the first time on screen. So I think there is a real naturalism to a lot of these relationships. Uh, Monty underscore 10 also wants to know, are you gonna be doing a book signing at Powell's? Uh, I, I stupidly didn't ask, I think because of quarantine, uh, yeah, no, that's actually, that. that's not stupid that's at all. That's a good point. Yeah, but <laughs> that, that's not Powell, stupid. If you're willing to do it, I would love it. <laughs> How about if, if he, if you come along with like, will you stand, you know, six feet away, he can slide you the book and then yes. you can slide it back. <laughs> with, with gloves. Yeah, you, you right. can wear gloves. Okay, you, you just brought up the method acting of these guys and that's a perfect entryway into the Sean Andrews chapter, which is... Yeah. Absolutely insane. Uh, Sean uh, Andrews, for people who don't remember him, is the guy that plays Pickford. He's a uh, long, stringy hair. His shirt's always open. 
And he was like kind of from stories I've heard like Vincent Gallo before Vincent Gallo. And, you know, he just spends the whole movie being really disruptive. He's upstaging all of the other actors while they're trying to do scenes. He keeps like changing what he's supposed to be doing. And like he also had been promoted by his manager as the next Marlon Brando. And, you know, there, there had been this energy that he was bringing that he was going to be the breakout star of this movie. And he kept hijacking the set. He hijacked Mia Jovovich. Um, They ended up in a very intense relationship during this, uh, during this uh, filming. There's two parts of this that I found really fascinating, but how much about him did you know going into this? Because he's kind of fallen off the map since this movie. Yeah. Um, I knew that he didn't get along with cast, but that's all I knew. They hated him. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I mean, it literally came up in every interview I did where everyone was like, did people tell you about Sean Andrews? I mean, like people who were like in the crew knew. There's that great line that uh, Rory Cochran, who plays Slater, has when he's like, if everybody says the same thing about this guy, that's karma. Yeah, absolutely. People still seem like they're kind of pissed off about it, um, you know, many, many years later. Um, and, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, obviously, he did himself no favors during that movie. But I think um, in some ways, his manager kind of set him up for being the guy who everybody hated by um, reportedly, um, you know, according to other people, calling in ahead of time. And like you said, you know, calling him the next Marlon Brando, like, everyone is going to hate the dude who's not famous, who's calling himself at 20 something years old, the next Marlon Brando. The the thing about it though, that I think is really ironic because he ended up so difficult to work with that he ended up out of scenes that he was supposed to be in. Like, you know, he's actually supposed to be in the final scene where they're driving for the Aerosmith tickets and end up using McConaughey who even says like, I kind of benefited from Sean Andrews being impossible to work with. Because yeah. I ended up replacing him in a lot of these scenes. But the irony to me of him in doing all this stuff and acting out like this, you know, in trying to upstage everybody and be the most memorable memorable character, you don't remember a thing he does in this movie. Nope. Like, like he's yeah. actually totally forgettable. Like, other than the fact that his house party uh getting busted leads to them going to the moon towers, like he doesn't really do anything in this movie. Yeah. Well, and you know, he almost, the scenes that he's in, he almost seems like he's in a different movie with the exception of the time when the, you know, the kegger comes and his parents are there. He is funny in that. (laughs) But um, there's certain scenes where he's like, you know, walking through the hall and kind of like mumbling things. And he kind of has this Jim Morrison vibe to him. It seems like he's coming in, like he's kind of the guy who came in from a drama and ended up in a comedy and isn't really sure why he's there. Like you kind of get the sense that he's meant to be in a different movie. And I think he just really wanted to show, he really wanted to do well and show what a great actor he was. And it kind of went the reverse. Well, the other thing though, that he, he was attached to Mia uh, throughout the entire filming of this thing. And she, it seems like became kind of difficult to deal with too. And she was, you know, by far the most known commodity you know, in this movie at the time they were filming. Yeah. And I remember when the movie came out, I, I had always wondered why is her role so small? Like, you know, yeah. was, was was she, you know, just cut from certain stuff, you know, because that happens? Like, you know, was she just contractually, uh, was she just like filling out a contractual obligation by doing this movie? Or, you know, was she doing it as a favor to someone? 
And then you sort of realize, like, I think her attachment to Sean Andrews and like that proximity that kind of screwed her out of scenes too. Yeah. So she did not talk to me for this book. Um, I don't know what her memories are like, but, um, but she neither did, did he. Yeah. Neither did he. Um, but she did do press around this time, right after Days and Confused, where she said that she felt totally taken advantage of, that she claims that she talked to Richard Linklater um, before the movie was even cast and told him, look, I don't wanna be in this movie unless I can expand my role. And that did happen for a lot of people. A lot of people did expand their roles in the movie. So it wasn't unheard of, I think. Um, and she claims that Linklater said, yes, go for it. And then that didn't happen for her. And I think she felt used. She actually says, I felt used in some of the press from that time they put her on the poster you know yeah, right she have a lot of lines in the movie and i don't know if people had as much of a difficult time with her um so much as the fact that she was kind of by association with sean like you said that people were having such a hard time with sean that they weren't really bonding with her how how much of a sense that you know because again people are moving in and out like there isn't you know mcconaughey gets a little bit more screen time than you know it was originally intended but at the same time, it's not like he's got, you know, 40 scenes in the movie is in it throughout. As the movie was being made, did did people have a sense of what that like what it was going to look like? Did, were the characters, were the actors themselves yeah. aware of how much they were in it or not? Yeah, I don't think so at all. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about how the women, the different female characters got um, paired way down in the final version and the people kind of realized, wait, there's no female lead in this movie anymore. Um, and when I talked to Sandra Adair, who is Linklater's longtime editor, she said it was really in the editing room where she realized, oh, this is about Pink and Mitch. I mean, obviously that was there from the beginning for Richard Linklater because it's his story. But, um, you know, it's a real ensemble movie. You know, like you said, that everybody's kind of coming in and out and it's not really, you know, one person besides Pink. So I don't think any of them had any idea. And I think they cut a lot of scenes out of the movie too, not just the women, but um, some other kind of heavier scenes didn't end up making it into the movie in the end too. Uh, you, we have a question from Jay Franco G. What happened to Sasha Jensen? Who, who plays Don in the movie. Yeah, so um, he is doing a number of things now, but including um, still screenwriting. He is involved, I think, as a producer in a Rin Tin Tin movie. Mm -hmm. um, so he's kind of behind the scenes now. Um, but man, he's a great interview, and I think he's great in that movie. And I personally, selfishly, would love to see him in more movies. <laughs> I thought he was going to be huge after yeah, that movie. It seemed like he's it. so, yeah, he's yeah, so yeah, funny and charming. And and yeah. the, as a frame of reference, the guy in the overalls. Like you have to. I mean, yeah. it's, it is impossible to remember who is who just by their names. Like I, yeah. I couldn't do it. The guy on the far right. Yes. Yeah. He seems like a lot of fun. Like the the joy that you you referenced it earlier. Like the joy that people have talking about this movie and talking about this experience is palpable. Like whether they're stars, whether they never acted again, whether they worked on the side, you know, as as a DP, whatever you know, whatever it might be. PA, an extra, like everyone looks back on this, it seems like with really fond memories. Yeah, and you know, it's still kind of emotional for people. Like um, a couple of people cried when I interviewed, a lot of people cried when I interviewed them and not just cast, like crew members. Um, and I think it really is kind of the time that people look back on as one of the best jobs they had. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting though, like, cause the majority of the people really do 
But then you have a, a case like Michelle Burke Thomas, who who plays Jody in the movie, um, uh, Pink Floyd's girlfriend, and she has a lot of harbored bad feelings from yeah. the experience. Like she didn't get along with Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams, and felt like they were mean to her throughout. I mean, actually, it's funny throughout this movie, and then apparently they're all three in Coneheads. Yeah, I had I had no I idea about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, like many people, I've forgotten Coneheads, but uh, they all three of them were in this movie, and she says they continued to be mean to her, and like, and it sounds like to some degree she has good reason for thinking this, but it also struck me just how it it reminds me of the way we re all remember things from high school. Because yeah. their recollections of it were, well, we just weren't friends with her. But, you know, i sorry if we hurt her feelings. I, I Parker Posey and Joey Lauren Adams both don't really feel like that was the case or, you know, that they were intentionally going at her. And you sometimes you don't know exactly what's real, what's been sort of built up in your memories over decades. But, you know, it's still obviously a pretty raw thing for her. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a thing that came up again and again as people saying it was so high school. It was so like high school. You know, a lot of people remember their experience on Days Defused as being like high school. Um, and I think, you know, I admire Michelle for being honest about her perspective on that, because one of the first things she told me is whenever anybody talks about this movie, they always say it was the best summer of my life it was the best movie I ever made. And I wish people would be more honest about it. And she's pretty honest about it. She had a very mixed um, experience on that film. So I, I understand that. And I respect that she, you know, was the one kind of dissenting view on the cast. Well, and it's also funny too, that, you know, so many people kind of look back on it as like, you know, Ben Affleck saying it's like the most fun I've ever had on a set and all these other things. Like, you know, because one of the themes of the movie is like, if I look back on this era of my life and it's the, these are the best years of my life, kill me. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know, to some degree, like that nostalgia play is, is part of the appeal of the movie. Um, yes. And even well, for, it seems like for the people who are in it. Absolutely. And I think, I feel kind of dumb that I didn't realize that the same thing that happened to Richard Linklater ended up happening to me, right? In this book because, <laughs> you know, he started out wanting to make this anti-nostalgia movie that became this huge nostalgia movie. I thought I was writing a book about the concept of nostalgia and it ended up being such a repository for the nostalgia of the cast and the crew. Mm -hmm. um, I did not expect that that was going to happen. But I also think too, it becomes a, a like a nostalgia play for the part of your life that drew you to the movie to begin with, because, you know, like yeah. Andy referenced it before, like it's a, it's an era specific movie, not just in terms of the content, but also in terms of the delivery. It's an indie film that, you know, it, I mean, I think it made it for six, it made eight in the theaters, whatever, but it really took off as, you know, as a rental. Um, yeah. But, you know, when Andy was saying before, like, you can't hop around scenes, that it came out on VHS first probably makes a difference, too. Because, you know, with a DVD player, now you actually can just, oh, I just want to watch that one. I like, you, you kind of had to pop in the tape and watch the thing or put it on and leave it there, whatever. And so, for me, it just reminds me of a period of movies where I watched movies differently than I do now. And I... You know, you appreciate and you memorize movies differently than you do now. Like I, my freshman year in college, I, I watched, you know, Braveheart like 782 times. This is before <laughs> we knew that Mel Gibson was 
totally creepy and weird. Uh, I just thought it was a good movie. Like stuff like that. You just, you have the memories of, of that stuff. And so how, how, when, when, when people talk about the appeal of this movie, how much of it do you think is that, that it reminds them not just of their high school, but just of the point of their life where this movie was a thing? Hugely. Um, and I think too, um, just as a follow-up to that thought, like I always ask Linklater, you know, would this movie have had the longevity that it does that it does now if it had been a massive hit um, at the box office? And I don't think he thinks so, and I don't think so either. Like, you know, you don't really feel like it's made for you, like it's personal mm-hmm. if it's a hit in that way. Um, I mean, so many things in the 90s that were my favorite things were somebody being like, oh, you've never heard of this thing? Here's a bootleg VHS. Like, you know, go check it out. And you feel kind of like it's well, it, when you it, it, was, it was the era of indie everything. You yeah. know, like there's in, indie movies, indie music. You know, there there was a lot of indie, yeah, yeah, exactly. There, there was a lot, like even like coffee shops were starting to have that boom. You know, like the... Yeah. The, the independent coffee shop where you'd go in there and it's just like shelves and shelves of books and, and you're and you're just drinking coffee amongst books yeah. and, and feeling like you're this independent thinker. You know, and, and I think there there's a reason that all those things kind of took off at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It was the internet before the internet was really it is now. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll show you this. Like, I bought this shirt for a friend of mine once, and it, like, this is that. Uh, oh, it doesn't show. It's it says I listen to bands that don't even exist yet. Like that's <laughs> that's what that's what that was. And it's like you know, yeah. if the minute and Andy, you were kind of like this. Like the minute anybody had heard of the music that you like, you didn't like it. No, anymore. I no, I wasn't like I was not like that. What? But I do have a funny. I I told you that story when I was in college at, at USC, um, it was right around when Nirvana broke out. And I was in Venice beach with this guy that I was friends with at the time who was that indie music snob. Like mm-hmm. I, I was a music snob in the sense that I took music seriously, but I was not a music snob in the sense that I had to know everything you didn't, but yeah. this guy did. And I remember we're walking through Venice beach and this Jeep drives by and they're blasting smells like teen spirit. And my friend just yells out, sell out. <laughs> and I look, I'm like, who are you yelling that at? Like, are you yelling that at Nirvana? Are you yelling at the guys in the Jeep? Like, what, what does that mean? Like, who sold out here? I don't even know what you're mad at. But there yeah. were people like that. Well, and you know, what's so interesting too, is that I I don't really think that exists anymore, that concept of selling out in the same way that it did back then. But you think about Richard Linklater, who made the ultimate indie movie where he was calling all the shots himself with Slacker, going to a studio, like that was kind of a risky move at the time, because a lot of people who love indie film would think that that might think that that was a sellout move too, even though I totally think, you know, he made the exact movie that he wanted to make, just got a studio to pay for it. Well, it's, it's also too, there's, there's an irony, like, I think just there's an assumption even too, that even not even just with slackers and, and what came after, like y- you assume that Richard Linklater is not a guy who wants to make studio movies or would want to work inside this, yeah. but he's like, yeah, no, I, I, I have no problem with it. I did, you know, like he's yeah. not anti-studio in, in a way that you would answer the studio that, telling him what to do. Right. But that, well, every, <laughs> most directors sure. are like that, by the way, this is the t-shirt. I, 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 I it right. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and, 
you know, he's he, he comes out of this like going, yeah, I absolutely wanted to make a movie with a studio coming out of yeah. Slackers. Like, yeah, I didn't have a problem with it at all. It was a time when, you know, Sam Raimi was making a movie with Universal and Spike Lee was making a movie with Universal. I mean, these, it, it was more a time when it, it wasn't... Um, there were people who came before him that you could see why he'd be like, I want to go the Spike Lee route too. Well, that, that's actually what one detail in the book that I thought was really funny was, you know, because Linklater fought a lot with Universal. Like, yeah. he, I mean, he actually wrote a piece for the Austin Chronicle the day before the movie came out, trashing the whole process and experience of working with Universal. Yeah. But what I thought was really funny was the studio guys that were sent to keep tabs on him they were all guys that had been working with the Cohen brothers and like Sam Raimi, Sam Raimi. And like, you know, they were employed by a studio, but I think I'm not sure Linklater, it doesn't sound like he necessarily gave them enough credit for being a little more independent than they, they might've seen just because they were getting studio checks. Yeah, I mean, like, you're totally right. John Cameron, who was the first AD on that movie. You have in the book, there's all these people saying in a row, like, studio guy, studio guy. And then John Cameron's like, I was not a studio guy. <laughs> yeah, they're like yelling at him, like, narc, you know, basically the whole time. Yeah, and I think to the slacker people, he was a studio guy. I mean, Universal suggested that Linklater put him on this film. So that's all they needed to know. The, there's a go ahead Brian. I, was, I think we're about to say the same thing go ahead Andy um, well, I, I don't know I hope we are um, <laughs> we'll find out there's a, a section towards the end where you no, talk about I, I remember this was this was uh, I remember when this was being talked about the potential of a sequel to Days yeah. and Confused and it, it never ended up happening and there, there's a funny anecdote in there about Sasha Jensen running into Matthew McConaughey on the beach and McConaughey is like they should just leave the thing alone it's perfect would you want to see the sequel? I mean, I, obviously, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do think he basically made the sequel with Everybody Wants Some. Um, I mean, even time-wise, you know, it's like these these kids who were freshmen in 1976 would be freshmen in college in 1980 when that movie takes place. You know, the main character in that movie seems very much like Mitch. He's playing baseball like Mitch did. There's even all these like little callbacks, like the fact that they say, that's what I'm talking about all the time. And the Gilligan's Island thing, you know how they talk yeah. about Gilligan's mm -hmm. Island and Days and then they're playing the Gilligan's Island theme song and everybody wants some. So I, I do feel like that is the sequel that he wanted to make, but it's really fun hearing the cast talk about their ideas for where their characters would be later. Well, the only thing that gives me even the slightest amount of faith that could be done in a way that didn't just completely ruin everything would yeah. be the way that they put Cobra Kai together um, yeah. in the wake of Karate Kid, because that seemed like a terrible idea mm -hmm. at the time, and it's really good. Yeah. So it is possible. Yeah, like... Uh, like I train spotting two came out a couple of years ago and I actually thought it was really good. And yeah. I, I had been nervous about how it was going to turn out because I think the original is like a masterpiece. It's one of my favorite movies. And I, I found the, the sequels different, like it's much more introspective and, and kind of sad than the first one. But I, I think the key to is these guys are so much older now. Like they feel more lived in. Like if you were going to do a sequel, I think it actually would make more sense now. Like seeing these characters, as like true adults, like at the age of the people they used to rebel against. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like as opposed to just 10 years later. 
That's such a good point. You know, Cole Hauser, who plays Benny, the redhead in the movie, told me that he talked with Linklater about where his character would be. And Linklater was like, he's a teacher at the same school. <laughs> exactly what you said, like he kind of becomes the authority figure that he used to rebel against. I think that's interesting. That's a good Granted, LA suggests that Wooderson becomes, uh, grows up to become Mark Hanna from Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> possible um he also says this and this is what I, the, the last question i know we're up on the hour here and i don't want to keep you too long but um what happens to movies because uh, i know this is you know you are a person who has you know worked in this in this space for a long time um you know he, he granted la says i miss going to theaters because i don't look at my phone and all these what do you think happens to movies and movie theaters and the way that movies like this or otherwise get made and put out uh, well, you know, I'm a pretty anti-nostalgic person myself. So even though the very specific way that Dazed and Confused was made doesn't exist anymore, I think there's a ton of correlatives. And I feel like it's, I'm not, I don't feel like that's an era that I feel, you know, will never happen again and movies aren't as great anymore. I don't feel like that at all. I feel like mm -hmm. there's a ton of great stuff coming out all the time. Um, and I think you see a lot of influence of Dazed and Confused on these great high school movies now at something like, Booksmart or something like Waves, um, you know, all these directors now who are calling back on Dazed and Confused as an influence in this second generation of films. So I feel pretty optimistic about it. What do you guys think? Oh, we need to get back into theaters and the studios need to be able yeah. to actually open up productions. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's concerning. The, com the communal feeling of there are certain movies that I think really do suffer if you can't see them in a theater. And then there are others where it's like, you know what, this ability to deliver them in other ways and, and all that stuff just feels a lot more modern. It feels like you can open up access to more people once people get used to the idea. Like the amount of movies that don't get seen because you can only get them in a theater and then, you know, a year goes by before they come up on video or you know, video, Jesus, I'm old. Um, <laughs> they come up on streaming yeah. Um, is, yeah, you know, there's, there's a trade off there too. So. Um, yeah. Well, and you oof. know, as somebody who has kids, I am all for things. I don't really miss the theaters all that much. I know I probably shouldn't say that out loud, but I love being able to watch everything at home right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, before COVID, I talked to my son who's six and I was like, let's go to the theater. And he's kind of like, why? Like, I think like, you know, that generation, they don't really understand. It's like candy why? is why? the only reason yeah. snacks. Yeah. But people said like Mulan, why, why, you're going to spend $30 yeah. to buy Mulan. I was like, do you know how much it would cost me to take the kids to the movie theater? I'm saving $30 by spending 30 on Mulan. Yeah. So yeah. Um, all right. It is a fantastic book. It looks like this. <laughs> um, all, right, all right, all right, all right. Is it also looks is, like this? Oh, that's a better version. Let me get this out of the way so people can see the whole thing. Um, by now, people know you're the guest on the show, so that's what it looks like. Um, it is really good. It is a really good, so fun. It is so, so much fun to read. Um, Melissa Merritt is the author. You can get it on uh, Amazon or anywhere you buy books. Um, next week. Next week, correct? Correct. Right. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, are you really kidding? Pleasure. This was so fun. Thank you for having me on. Awesome. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Jordan Rodrigue from The Athletic. We're going to break down some Rams, take a look at some NFL. And then Friday, Harrison Fagan and Anthony Irwin uh, to get into a whole bunch of Lakers, NBA, 
Uh, Russell Westbrook apparently wants out of Houston, so there is a lot going on. So uh, again, strong close for the week, and we will see everyone tomorrow. Thank you, Nederland.